This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Veterans Affairs Office of Inspector General is in the midst of a region-by-region look at how well its facilities perform their mission. It's something the IG does every three years. This time around, no surprise, the COVID pandemic is a big part of the look-see. In fact, inspectors themselves had to switch to online visits. For what they found and how they found it out, we turn to the Deputy Assistant Inspector General, Mary Toy. Ms. Toy, good to have you on. Great, Tom. Thank you for having me. And so in this round of rounds, you might say, to the different regional areas of VA, you have been doing this virtually, an inspection. Tell us how that works. So because of the COVID-19 pandemic, we did convert our scheduled July and September 2020 site visits for the VISN 10 and VISN 20 facilities to virtual reviews. We dropped our usual physical inspections with the physical rounds that are done for the environmental care review and instead initiated an evaluation of COVID readiness and response instead. So to conduct these virtual reviews, we interviewed VA facility leaders and staff by video teleconference and gathered VA staff's feedback through an anonymous electronic survey. Our CHIP site visits take about a week to complete However, for these virtual reviews, we did allow extra time and other flexibilities for our teams to work with VHA facility leaders and staff because of their simultaneous health care sure. priorities for our veterans and civilian patients. And were some video walkthroughs part of this? Because I imagine you can pick up a lot of clues as to the condition of a place when you're there and can see it and frankly in medical facilities can smell what's going on. Right, right. So for the physical inspection process itself, we felt like it would not be fully comprehensive. And as a result, we did drop that review to create some capacity for us to evaluate their COVID readiness and response. Because I remember at one time there was an emergency report a few years back on the D.C. Medical Center, and you had to see it to believe it because of the conditions and closets and so forth. I imagine that's a rarity. We hope it is, but you don't get that chance to peek inside a a supply closet or a prescription dispensary. Correct. So we hope that now that the country is opening up again, that we will be returning to our physical on-site inspection process within the next few months. So we'll see how it goes, just waiting on CDC guidance and additional guidance from the Biden administration. And on a typical CHIP, Comprehensive Healthcare Inspection Program visit, how many people are involved from the Office of the Inspector General? How many people does it take to look at a, at a visit in a regional area, which has many, many locations? So we usually cover about nine to 10 topics, uh, specific areas that shows how well the facility is operating and gives us a taste of what the quality of the care that's provided. So we generally send a project leader and then four inspectors to evaluate one medical center or healthcare system. Just reading from the report, you look at five issue areas, emergency preparedness, supplies, equipment, infrastructure, staffing, access to care, and community living center, patient care, those five parameters. Did the COVID aspects overlay all of those things too this time? Correct. So this report focused on our results for only one of the nine topic areas that we covered during our CHIP reviews at these 13 facilities. So the subject areas that you just mentioned focuses purely on the COVID review area that we looked at. Got it. And what were your general impressions then of how well they were responding to COVID? 
So with these 13 facilities, of course, the results were very individualized for each of them. Keeping in mind also that at the time of the inspections, the facilities had not yet experienced the full force of the pandemic peaks that we subsequently saw this past November and December. But the leaders and the staff did have valuable information to share with us. Many of the facility leaders cited communication as key to effective preparations and several recognized leadership efforts on the part of VA Central Office and their VISN offices in terms of providing the needed information and guidance. So for instance, for Ann Arbor, I'd like to highlight some results that we have in the report. For Ann Arbor, the facility managers trained healthcare personnel to decontaminate personal protective equipment, items like goggles and face shields and items that were needed by the intensive care unit. They also borrowed 10 ventilators from the University of Michigan during the early weeks of the pandemic and acquired additional ventilators in preparation for future waves. In terms of the hands-on care that the facilities were providing, in terms of surgery and outpatient clinic visits, the pandemic definitely affected those areas. The leaders reported adherence to the VISN and VHA guidance about canceling elective procedures. And notably, at the time of the inspections, all facilities had resumed elective procedures in varying capacity, except for Spokane, Washington. The VA there had a backlog of semi-urgent surgeries that were still being addressed before they could even consider continuing elective procedures. We're speaking with Mary Toy. She's Deputy Assistant Inspector General at the Veterans Affairs Department. So you got the sense that the people were pretty honest with you, that you were interviewing by video, I presume, of the challenges they faced and how they were able to respond to them? Yes, we did all of our interviews by video teleconference. We saw, you know, sometimes um, the nonverbal communication tells you so much more than what the words did. And they were sincere and honest and we could see the stress on their faces. And then we kept the time constraints that they had in mind as we conducted this review. And do you think that this procedure, maybe doing a lot of the interviews remotely without all the travel and time it takes, and just the physical on-site inspection of the physical plant, let's say, eventually back in person because you need to do that, is that going to be maybe a new standard operating procedure for the OIG? (laughs) Good question. We are working on how we might proceed in the new normal The pandemic has forced us into looking at more creative ways of how we can accomplish our work and oversight mission. Certainly, so I'm smiling right now because we are in some transition mode and we do envision there to be some changes, perhaps sending a partial team out and having others stay behind to conduct their work virtually because it is certainly possible and more efficient use of government resources. Yes, it is efficient, both with resources and time of the individuals, but there's got to be something important in the on-site visits, even for the interviews, I imagine. That's pretty hard to replicate any other way, isn't there? Definitely. We plan to go back and be on-site in the very near future. And so you've done Vision 20 and 10, sort of, a, I guess, the upper left corner of the country is a better way to put it. Right. And what's left to do now in this cycle? So during the last six months, we have continued our cyclical inspections virtually, 
end as scheduled. We plan to continue our assessments of the COVID-19 pandemic response and readiness. During this past time, we have completed additional unannounced virtual reviews with VISN-19, which is the Rocky Mountain Network, VISN-1, the New England Healthcare System, as well as VISN-8, which is the VA Sunshine Healthcare Network. I don't have any definitive to share yet in regards to these inspections. Our teams are still analyzing the data, finalizing results, and drafting reports that still have to be issued to these VA facilities for development of action plans that address our recommendations for improvement. So no recommendations yet. You're just in data gathering mode. Exactly. Mary Toy is Deputy Assistant Inspector General at the Veterans Affairs Department. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. We'll post this interview along with a link to her report on the two regions, anyhow, at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a senior advisor and deputy chief of staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is to sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy, that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. 
And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to to fight for change. And that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. A very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there've been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the US Ch Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad historic sweeping what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers, and that that attribute I think is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give 
to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, at the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care.